Pound the Rock is brought to you by the Score Bet. That's right. We brought you the best sports media app. Now we're bringing you the best sports book and casino. Now live in Ontario. The Score Bet offers a safe and secure mobile sports book experience with both pregame and in-play markets. But best of all, it's integrated into the Score and our content to give you the easiest and most seamless sports betting experience. Download now on iOS and Android. Available in Ontario only. Must be 19 years of age or older to participate. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call Connects Ontario at 1-866-531-2600. Hello there and welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I am Joe Wolfond and I'm joined, as always, I was going to say, I mean, we had a brief hiatus, but every time I'm on here... I am joined by Joseph Cacharo, my co-host. Talk to me, Cash. Man, it feels uh, it feels all right and pretty relaxing to be in the not host chair for the first time in like two months. Just letting you cook. It's all good, man. We, Sitting here on the day after another fraudulent Philadelphia 76ers loss. Oh, wow. We'll uh, get into I, that next week in our playoff previews. Well, I mean, are you are, are you ready to recant? your insistence that James Harden had to be an all-star, that it was inconceivable that he not be named to the Eastern Conference all-star team with the way that he has performed this season. I mean, I've been saying like that, that I've, I've been disappointed with James Harden all season, that I feel like he's, you know, washed adjacent all season. And even I was shocked by how ineffectual he was in that game last night. It's it's got to be worrisome for Philly as, as they uh, as they head into the postseason. One hundred percent. I'd say that no. I stand by the things because at the time we were going by what it was at that point of the season. And I respect your opinion on on Drew and and I still like Drew has been phenomenal this year. You know, I um, big fan of what he's done this year and in general the player he is. I still think at the point in time when we were talking All Star, even in a disappointing year, I still thought Harden was one of the top twelve players in the East, six guards in the East, whatever it was he needed to be to to be an all-star. So I don't take that back. What I, not that I take back, but what I definitely would like to revisit, and I'm sure we will again next week when we talk more about the Sixers and their playoff chances and stuff, is his impact on Philly and and what we, or at least what I thought it was going to be. And and I guess how misleading that first seven to 10 days is. Because if you remember, like the thing that I was so latched onto was like the way he played in in that month span before the mysterious quad issue or whatever it was, hammy issue that coincided with the rumors that he wanted out. So I was like, okay, well maybe he's healthy and he's just doing the Harden thing. Like he's actually fine now. And that, that month of play looked like was him being him again. And he's just forcing his way out. And then the, the way he played those first, what, like five ish games in Philly, I was like, okay, see that this is exactly what I thought. Like this, he looks like the guy he was that, that month before he got hurt, which is pretty much back to being James Harden. So I think for me, what I'd like to revisit, yeah, it's just like how misled I was by that. And I guess how, uh, like if, if, if I'm wrong about anything when it comes to Harden this year, I'd say it was that. It was like how quickly I believed he was back. Would you say you have been hoodwinked, bamboozled, <laughs> led astray? Run amok. Um, 100%. As, and you know who else has been? Daryl Morey. I mean, he's got nobody to blame but himself. This was the yes. guy that he hitched his wagon to. And um, there's been good and bad with him in Philly, but lately it's been more bad than good. And 
I guess I'll just put it to you. If if you're Philly, yeah, and you had an opportunity to just swap James Harden for Drew Holiday for the playoffs, forget contract status, age, future, whatever. You can just flip them for the playoffs for the rest of this season. Would you do it? Look, the, yeah, the easy answer based on the way they're playing right now would ha- would be yes, but... Okay, moving no, on. No, hold on. <laughs> but, come on, but you have to see what I'm saying too, where it's like, there there is still this like tease of a ceiling that comes with James Harden that as good as Drew Holiday is, I don't believe is there. Now, the floor, I think, is higher with Drew Holiday there. And maybe you can argue at the level Joel Embiid is playing at, you might take the more stable floor and they're just like, know what you're getting. Uh, the solid defense at the point of attack, which the Sixers desperately need. I agree with all that. It's, But I still do think that there is, there's like a ceiling that comes with Harden and and if he, and again, it could just be really naive of me to think, well, like if, if he can find to James Harden of old, or not even of old, of like two months ago again, you know, for a, a, a stretch here in the playoffs, then I still would say it's Harden no-brainer. But I'm, I'm definitely getting to the point where I'm starting to lose faith in that Harden coming back. And you know this because even, even in my praise of Harden, even in me, you know, reveling in the fact that uh, I enjoy the entertainment that comes with him being an agent of chaos and it, it creating leverage through chaos, even in me saying he was still an all-star this year and all of that, I am also still a guy that's also that's said when the going gets tough, James Harden gets lost. So for as much as I, you know, I I thought he deserved to be an All Star and still think there's a ceiling that comes with him that a guy like Drew Holiday doesn't bring. I'm also very aware of the fact that I'm not sure I would want to be the team that has to rely on James Harden hitting that ceiling in the playoffs because more often than not, once his team's backs against the wall or once it looks like it's a bit of an uphill climb, he's not really the guy you want to rely on. Okay, so what, what was, what's the answer? Yes or no? No. No, you, you, you would take Harden. You'd, you'd go into the playoffs with Harden. Yeah. That's fine. I, I, that's, I don't think that's like an egregious answer, and I totally agree with what but you're I'm saying. Le- about, but I'm about less confident. I'm, I'm way less confident in it than I would have ever been at any other point in their, in their respective careers had you asked the same question. Like, it's frightening how close it is. Yeah, I mean, I'll put it this way. He has not looked this bad during any stretch of games that I can remember in like the last decade in which he wasn't trying to play his way out of a situation <laughs> yeah. that he didn't want to be in. Yeah. So and I think I think that has to be a significant concern. Like, you know, we we were expecting there to be a honeymoon phase. I was expecting it to last a whole lot longer than it actually did. Yeah, it lasted like five games. Uh, and that's and, all subject to change, right? Like yes. He, he could look like Harden again in the playoffs, and and we could be singing a much different tune. But uh, I don't. Did, sorry, did you have something you wanted to add? No, to that? I, I mean, again, like I, I don't want to take too much time because I know the point of today's episode is we want to do our awards picks. But the last thing I want to say on Harden, I kind of touched on it last episode, was just you know don't take anything for granted. That, that extent, the the option wasn't picked up, even though we thought it was. He he says he will pick it up, but again, can't you know, take anything for granted in the NBA when it comes to James Harden, especially. And, and if he gets to the off season and says, you know what, actually I prefer an ex- a new contract now instead, it's going to get really, really dicey because again, even me who was su- fully supportive of them getting James Harden and still thought he was an all-star caliber player. 
even I was saying at the time, the best thing that could have happened to them when we thought he picked up the option was him picking up that option because you you have him for the next year and a half. You don't have to worry about being the team that pays him his next contract yet. You can figure that out over the next year and a half. If you have to make that decision this summer, I I really don't want to be that team. So it's uh, it, it's it's crazy how quickly this has devolved for the Sixers from like, wow, we got our guy. We finally got it. Like, uh, you know, the, the true ball dominant start to play with Joel Embiid. Everything's looking up. You know, the next year and a half, like Joel Embiid has his first real, real, real chance to win a title. And like in the span of what, a month, it's gone to this, you know, might be as disastrous as ever. They might be a first round flame out. Doc might be on the way out. And we don't even know if they should be committing to James Harden beyond this summer. Yeah. Well, we'll know a whole lot more after their playoff run ends right. whenever that happens to be. Yeah. Uh, but, and again, like very much subject to change. Like maybe this is just a lull, but I think regardless, the, the lulls have been there and they have been extended this season. So it's like, even if this is a lull and he manages to crest that wave once again, it's fair to assume at this point that there's still going to be like another extended lull around the corner because that's how this season has gone for him. Like he just hasn't had the consistency. So, I mean, like the, the, the biggest thing to me is like, he just like can't, he can't beat anybody off the bounce anymore. Right. Like that's, that's yeah. really concerning. Yeah. And when it comes to, you know, getting even like a half step on guys and, having that, you know, I've talked about it all season, like the finishing step, right? Like the explosiveness when he gets into the restricted area to to sort of be able to power through contact and actually finish rather than just flail and hunt for the foul. uh, That's just not there right now. Like he's really relying on getting to the free throw line. And and that would really worry me because I think while I feel like it's a little bit overblown, the extent to which the whistle tightens up in the playoffs, I don't think it's totally bunk either. and, And I think even like a small difference in the way that the game is officiated could have a big impact on the effect that James Harden can have on Philly's offense. So and on the no team would be more impacted by that in general than the Sixers who between Joel Embiid and James Harden like live at the free throw line. And again, I'm not because of their grifting or whatever. It might be a bit of that, but because they are that hard to guard and Embiid, especially like no team is more susceptible to a potential free throw related offensive difference than the Sixers. I guess last question for you on this subject, because again, we've we've done the thing that we always do is where, where we sort of take a topic that we're not even planning on talk, talking about and spend like 10 minutes at the top of the episode. We, we give the people what it. they want. But uh, you you were mentioning the, the thing with Harden's player option for next season. Do you buy the story that he intended to pick it up and just missed the deadline, which was what was reported? Do you buy that? Um, No, probably not. Probably not. Probably uh, not. Okay. I, I, yeah, I, I'd say if I had to put money on it, I'd say maybe he was giving himself an out or at least just giving himself options. You? No. All right. You want to talk <laughs> awards? Let's, uh, let's pick some awards, man. I have uh, a feeling Daryl Morey's not going to be our executive of the year this year. Afraid not. Um, yeah, what, uh, what, where do you want to start? I mean, we could... Obviously, we could start with the with the big one with MVP, or we could Let's, we could save that for last. What so that be, what keep the what's like? 
So what? So people, so people will stay and listen to the end. Yeah, yeah. No, okay. You know what? I'll I'll let you choose. You were away for a month and a half, and you're you're hosting today. You tell me where we're starting. Let's just let's get it out of the way, man. Let's start with MVP. Okay. But you you uh, tell me first who you've got uh, who you, who you've got winning this award. Nikola Jokic. I think that Joel Embiid and Giannis Antetokounmpo had two out of this world seasons. I think that in a lot of years, either one of those campaigns is an MVP caliber campaign. Joel Embiid asked the question a few days ago of like, if I don't win it this year, I almost feel like, what do I have to do? Well, Joel, what you have to do is you have to be the most valuable player in the league. And unfortunately, despite your efforts, there was a guy that was more valuable this year. And his name's Nikola Jokic. And what I will say is as much as I, I want to praise what Embiid and Giannis did this year, nothing about what I'm about to say is a slight on those guys. It is completely about how just on a different planet Nikola Jokic was this year. Not only am I picking Nikola Jokic as MVP, I don't think it should be that close. Like, I truly believe this guy was on another planet this year. And I think the way people should perceive that, again, is not like, well, that's a slight on, like, how could you say that when these other, like, uh, Giannis and Embiid had the years they had. That is not a slight on them. That is me saying, do you understand how stupidly good Nikola Jokic was this season? For someone like me to be saying he should be the no-brainer MVP in a year when two Hall of Fame talents also had otherworldly seasons. I think Jokic was that good. He averaged basically 27-14-8-1-1 on 62% effective field goal percentage. Not true shooting percentage, effective field goal percentage. He's on track to have the highest PR ever, but whatever. Even that, throw that aside because that I get it. It's an all-encompassing stat that's hard to break down. It's not even that indicative of things. And a lot of people have used the argument, especially on social media, that too many like advanced stats that don't actually mean anything like PR are being used in Jokic's favor. But you know what? Forget all that stuff. Just like watch the game and even look at some of the basic numbers and and some of the quote unquote advanced numbers that aren't more aren't actually that advanced. If you want to look at the on off thing, no one was better than Jokic this season. The Nuggets have a sixteen point four points per one hundred possessions difference between when he's on and off. It's the difference between being the best team in the league and the twenty seventh ranked team in the league. He was the best player on an NBA court the most often in this season. You want to use the fact that. The Nuggets finished, or are probably going to finish sixth uh, against him. While Embiid and 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 uh, Giannis are were competing for the one seed pretty much all year. Guess what? In terms of actual wins, the teams are like two games apart. All three teams and Jokic played in more wins this season than any of either of those two guys because of the games played factor. The fact that Jokic got the Nuggets into the playoffs proper, despite missing. Jamal Murray and Michael Porter Jr. for essentially the whole season to me completely eradicates any argument against him being, you know, six compared to those guys competing for a top two, three seed, whatever. And again, like I mentioned, he also played in more wins than those guys. First player ever to have 2,000 points, 1,000 rebounds, 500 assists in a season. Um, Also, when players are at this caliber and they're that important to their team, Playing matters. And I know it's not like a huge number, but at that level, it, it is kind of a big difference. He played 200 plus more minutes than Embiid and 300 plus more minutes than Giannis total. Again, I just think taking everything into consideration. Also, he was really good defensively this season. 
Like yep. early in the year, I thought it was like, okay, he was solid. He was better than he's been. He's holding the line. No, I think he was above average. I think he had a very good defensive season. And when you combine that with everything he did in the offense, it's just unreal what he's done this year. I remember early in the season, I was saying the only, I thought Jokic looked like the most valuable player early on in the season, but I didn't think he could actually win it because I didn't think, like, I thought he would have to do something so out of this world for the voter, like the media to actually give it to him a second year in a row. Well, I think he accomplished that. I think he's going to win it. I think he deserves to win it. I think he was the best player in an unforgettable season. And I don't think it was particularly close. I also picked Jokic. Uh, I don't agree that it's not close. I think that Embiid, and especially Jan- like I would have Giannis too, Embiid third, but I think both of those so, guys are pretty much on his heels and both have like pretty compelling arguments to win the award. I, I, I think, and everything you said, I don't have a ton to add to it, but I would just say, I think we can both agree and our listeners can probably all agree. Jokic's best skill is his passing. Right, he's he's probably the best passer in the league right now. He's yeah. one of the best passers ever. What would you say is Jokic's second best skill? Uh I guess. I mean, I guess I would say scoring. I don't scoring. Yeah, I I would agree. Okay, this guy's scoring twenty seven point one points per game on sixty five percent shooting from two point range. He's actually down at thirty four percent from three, like a, a bit of a dip from last season, but. It hasn't affected his efficiency really at all. He's at 66% true shooting. That's like 10 percentage points above league average on absurd volume. And that's his second best skill. I I mean, he is an absolute assassin from the mid-range. Anywhere within like 10 feet, like his, his touch from floater range is obscene. And for him to be doing that, to be scoring 27 points on 66% true shooting, and for that to be his second best skill is wild then i this guy's grabbing almost 15 rebounds per 36 minutes his defensive rebound rate is 35.5 percent so when he's on the floor he is grabbing 35.5 percent of all available defensive rebounds only rudy gobert is above him in that category and rudy gobert i know Jokic is playing drop more often than he has in some previous seasons but like gobert is not spending as much time as Jokic is on the perimeter. He's not coming up as high and hedging pick and roll to the same extent that Jokic is. He's getting up there and then he is getting back and he is snagging rebounds. He's a magnificent offensive rebounder. All of this kind of comes down to his hands, I think, which are maybe the best in the entire NBA. Like his hands are basically those sticky Velcro things that catch tennis balls. Like if there is a ball in his vicinity and he can get a hand on it, he will possess the basketball. And it's unbelievable watching him because if he's around the rim, he, he doesn't jump. Like he barely ever leaves his feet. He just sticks his hand up there. Like his positioning is obviously very sound and he is extremely intuitive and in reading angles and reading the ball coming off of the rim and off of the backboard. But those, those meat paws are just like an absolute magnet for the ball. And because of that, like that, that impacts his defense too, right? Like you mentioned how good he's been defensively this season. Uh, number one among centers in steals, number one among centers in deflections, um, and then obviously the the way that he is able to seal those defensive possessions with rebounds. That's why, like people are trying to figure out, they're trying so hard to figure out like why these defensive metrics love Jokic as much as they do. That rebounding is a huge part of it, 
and that is made possible by by his hands which like you'll see some possessions where he just one hand reaching up grabbing the ball firing like a water polo past the length of the court for an assist or at the offensive end it's like he's following his own shot one hand corrals it puts it back up and in i swear there are games i watch this guy play where he completely dominates without ever bringing the ball below his shoulders and never it's, leaving the ground it's uh yeah it's unbelievable and that's that's all like aesthetic stuff and i'm not factoring that into my choice i just often like completely forgotten nobody really ever talks about his rebounding because it is like so tertiary to his his passing and his scoring that we forget about this incredibly elite skill that he has like this is this is what's amazing about him he is so good in so many different ways and Giannis and Embiid have been otherworldly in their own ways but uh, to your point about availability, I mean, the fact that he has played seven more games than Embiid and eight more games than Giannis really matters. And I, I, I like don't necessarily want to use on off uh, if we're if we're splitting hairs in terms of the MVP stuff because I don't like penalizing a player for like having good backups, right? Uh, or rewarding a player for having bad backups. So let's just look at like how their teams perform with them on the floor, and it's very close. Uh, Jokic on the floor, the Nuggets are plus 8.4 net rating. Giannis on the floor, the Bucks are plus 7.7. And Bede on the floor, the Sixers are plus 7.8. So out of all those three teams with their best players on the floor, the Nuggets actually perform best. The team with the worst supporting cast around the MVP candidate in question is the team that performs best when yeah. those three guys are on the floor. Which, you know, like it's not a slight against the, the, the other no. Nuggets players who, many of whom have really stepped up this season and like, within the scope of their capabilities, have performed exceptionally well. I mean, Aaron Gordon has been great. Monty Morris has been great. Will Barton, Bones Highland. Like, these guys, I feel, have virtually maxed out their capabilities in supporting roles this year. But I agree. I think that that Jokic, out of those three guys, has had the weakest supporting cast. Though I feel like Embiid, at certain points, has maybe had an argument for that. But I just think for Jokic to be doing that is is more impressive to me than than those other guys doing it with the players that they've gotten to play with. And to me, it just comes down to the fact that Jokic makes everybody around him better. And I'm not saying that Embiid and Giannis don't do that. They do, but I don't think they do it to the same extent where as an offensive orchestrator, as a guy who's just consistently going to put other players in position to succeed and get the most out of them and get the most out of his team as a result. I just think Jokic has been that guy this season. I agree. Okay. Before we move on to the next award, I want to, I want to put you on the spot for one more of those one word answers from you. So we are both in agreement that Nikola Jokic for the second year in a row has been the most valuable player in the NBA uh, at the very least in the regular season. One word answer. Who do you believe is the best player on the planet right now. So take a like strictly. You have a game. You need to win it. You you know nothing else about who's on your team. All you know is you can pick one guy in the NBA to start this team that you need to win a game for. Who are you picking right now? Who's the best player in the Be NBA honest. right now? I, yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. I, I think we're on the same page there. Jokic has has been the most valuable the last two seasons. Giannis is the best. Though, yeah, and it it's it, it's like the same argument that people were making about LeBron in right. those two years that Giannis won at MVP, and I, I I wasn't debating that either. It was just yeah. like for the balance of the regular season, like it was clear cut Giannis had been 
the best player. And if you're saying, okay, one game, you know, game seven of the finals for all the marbles, which player do you want to have on your team more than any other? It's that's not the question that we're answering here, but I do think that answer is Giannis. I mean, I think coming up right behind him might be KD, like before I'd even go to Jokic and Embiid. But I think, yeah, if I was choosing now, Giannis would be the guy. Just like the the two-way ability is is so valuable, obviously. The guys who are going to finish top three in MVP voting this year are all international players. Serbian, Cameroonian, uh, Greek, or Nigerian Greek, if you want to say for Giannis. Mm-hmm. Uh, between him and Jokic, the last four MVP winners will be international Um I think Doncic is probably going to finish top four in MVP voting. So there's Slovenia. Like you're looking at a span where now we're going four years running where an international player um, has one MVP. You can make the argument that the three or four best players in the league on balance this year in the regular season were international players. Um, it's uh, it's cool for the game and it's cool for the league that you know the international boom that we've watched happen and been talking about for so long is now playing out at like the highest, highest level where – we're going on almost ha- by next year at this time. It'll be like half a decade since an American has won MVP. That's that's wild. It's a global game, man. It served. Yeah, we've been seeing a trend in this direction for a really long time. Okay, so there's that. You think it's Jokic in a landslide. I think it's Jokic, but it's actually quite close. And I will let you pick the next award we discuss. All right, let's uh, let's get this one out of the way too, because for me, this is the this is the most this was the most difficult one to decide, and it's defensive player of the year. I don't remember a season where there's as many guys in as wide open a defensive player of the year race as there was this year. So, I'm I'm throwing it out there this time. So I'll ask you first: Who's your defensive player of the year? Okay, so it really came down to two guys for me, and. I honestly, I went into this thinking that I was going to pick Rudy Gobert. And I got to say, it's head scratching to me. Like, I understand voter fatigue is a thing. And I understand that the Jazz have been very underwhelming on the whole this season. But like the number of people that I've just seen and heard, like completely dismissing his candidacy, leaving him off their ballots altogether. You see like Kendrick, not that I think we should be listening to Kendrick Perkins for basketball analysis, but just as a perfect example... Yes, I think it was yesterday. Within the last couple of days, someone tweeted about Rudy Gobert winning defense or like being in consideration and like Perkins like quote tweeted it. and his exact tweet was something like, no, like we're not doing that again this year. Like what? No, if he's been the best defensive player of the year or he's been one of the two or three, what do you mean we're not doing this again this year? It's a very simple question. Is he or is he not in the defensive player of the year? And like, oh, sorry, you've won it too many times and we don't like you for like a variety of reasons. Yeah, we're but not it, would be, it would be naive of us to not acknowledge that that is very often how voting works and how voters think and that's that's always been part of award voting you know going back you know since the beginning of nba awards like it's always been a thing it's it's part of the reason that michael jordan doesn't have more mvp awards right and probably the reason lebron doesn't have more mvp awards and that's fine like i think ultimately rewarding more people is not a bad thing like spreading the love around wanting to get some fresh blood is totally fine. I don't have an issue with that. And I don't think it's, I, I'm not, I'm not picking Gobert for the record. I'm just I, saying I he, he was basically my runner up and it was really close. 
And it's just baffling to me that like so many people seem so willing to like throw out his candidacy because the Jazz have been disappointing, especially when you look at the fact that they have been utterly dominant with him on the floor. And, you know, especially on the defensive side, like a big part of the reason they've been disappointing on the whole this season is like they can't defend when he's on the bench. And if you look at the defenders around him compared to some of the other candidates for this award and the defenders around them. And then you look at, okay, how have their teams performed with them on the floor? Uh, The Jazz have a 105.1 defensive rating with Gobert on, which is pretty much exactly the same as Bam Adebayo and Marcus Smart or the, the Heat and Celtics respectively with those guys on the floor. And if you think about like who is buffering Gobert, yeah, on Utah compared to who's buffering those guys with their respective teams. Like I just think it's, and I'm not saying like that's that, that is what makes Rudy Gobert the defensive player of the year. Like just those numbers right there. I'm just saying if you're going to use like the jazz's disappointments against Gobert, like please use some context and figure out like why that's actually happened. And, and you'll, I think you'll find that it's not because of Rudy Gobert. The thing that bothers me with it is like this time of year with rewards voting, and I get it. Like people like us who like work in basketball media and have a but whatever. Like obviously we take it you know more seriously than a casual fan. I that I get, but sometimes you have people that you know will say stuff like, "Well, like who, like oh you think this guy should have made All NBA and he didn't, or like this guy should have been in the defense or should have got like votes for Defensive Player of the Year and he didn't, but he wasn't going to win it. Like why does it matter? Like no, th- this stuff matters. Like because I firmly believe in rewarding the players that deserve to be rewarded, and also don't forget that there are financial incentives tied to a lot of these things. Okay, f- more people know about the fact that there's like supermax incentives tied to winning MVP or Defensive Player of the Year, or being on All NBA teams, but contracts also have various bonuses in them. Like players have various bonuses in them tied to some of this stuff too. And like this stuff matters. If they deserve to be rewarded, they should be rewarded. And I hate when people in our industry who have votes just take a very lazy approach to it where, for example, to your point, they will look at it and say, well, the Jazz finished outside the top 10 in in defensive efficiency this year. They really dropped off defensively. Therefore, Gobert is no longer in the conversation when as you mentioned, a big part of that is because they can't defend without him on the court. He missed a little more time than usual this year. And also, when he's on the court, they have a defensive rating that would rank first in the NBA. And when he's off the court, they have a defensive rating that would rank 21st in the NBA. So please don't use the fact that they finished 11th in the defense. Listen, if you don't think he's the defensive player of the year, guess what? Neither do we. We both said he's our runner-up. But the argument better not just be well, the Jazz slipped defensively, so we can't do it. Or, well, he's won it so many times already. Like, no. It, if th- those are what you're going on, then you do not deserve a vote. Yeah, and I would love to hear, like, I don't hear a ton of rationale from those people who are dismissing his case for, like, why this year has been different. Like, what is he doing worse this season than in past years when he was clearly deserving of winning the award? You know, that's what I'm not really seeing. And I, I wish I could remember who who said this, I want to say it was Ben Taylor, but I'm not sure, but somebody basically coined him a heliocentric defender, which I think puts it perfectly like in that jazz ecosystem, right? Where he is everything like, like he is making that jazz defense work pretty much by himself. I mean, Royce O'Neal is, is a very solid defender, but apart from that, it's like, man, Mike Conley, who was once an excellent defender, isn't really that guy anymore. Like he is really struggling to get around screens. 
and, and Donovan Mitchell, I don't think has had a, a good defensive season at all. Uh, Joe Ingles before he got hurt was a mess at the defensive end of the floor. I think actually Bogdanovich is better than people give him credit for, but still like probably on the negative side of the ledger. Like there's just not a lot of help that he is getting and the responsibilities on him are immense. The number of fires that he has to put out are, uh, he's basically a volunteer firefighter. <laughs> there you go. Um, point, point being, I, I think that given what he is asked to do and the fact that he is able to put out all those fires, the fact that he is, you know, in my mind, the best drop defender in the league, but is also able, like, he plays close to the level of the screen now. Like, they'll switch him out there on the perimeter. He's plenty capable of doing that. And I, I don't think he's as one-dimensional a defender as people want to make him out to be. I feel like it looks that way sometimes because putting him in that role is the best way to keep that Jazz defense competent. That said... I voted Jaron Jackson Jr. Oh, so did I. We had, we had the exact same. We had Jaron I mean, 1 and Gobert 2. All right. So at first I was thinking, like, I don't think Jaron plays enough minutes to win this award. And part of that is because of his fouling issues. And even if some of that is the result of Taylor Jenkins needlessly fouling him out of games, <laughs> yeah. you know, by yanking him with four fouls when he doesn't need to, uh, picking up those fouls is still on Jaron. It's still something that hurts his case. And he's, you know, he's playing under 30 minutes a game. So that is what it is. At the same time, factoring in time missed, he's actually played more minutes this season than Gobert has. Um, so so here's, here's kind of the argument for and against, if I'm just like stacking them up side by side, right? Uh, they are basically two and three in the league in terms of defensive field goal percentage at the rim uh, with like a minimum of three shots defended there per game. Yeah. Uh, Both behind, under fifty percent be, behind the venerable Isaiah Harden. Yes, team. yes. Gobert's defending seven shots at the rim per game, and Jaron Jackson only four point eight. And that right there speaks to like the difference in role, right? Jaron is, first of all, I do think he is a more versatile defender. Like he is a better switch defender, better at hedging in my mind, and so that's part of the reason. But part of the reason also is he plays next to Stephen Adams a lot. Or he's playing next to Brandon Clark, and that affords him the latitude to go out and play on the perimeter more often because they still have an anchor on the back line. The Jazz don't have that. They have no secondary rim protection whatsoever. And so you see in those numbers, like Gobert is just asked to do more in terms of traditional rim protection. But then I also took, so, so I looked at like the numbers with Jaron Jackson at center. And the Grizzlies have a 102.1 defensive rating with him at center. And I was thinking about like the other big differentiator between the two that points to Gobert, which is that he's like a way, way better rebounder than Jaron, right? But like, I look at those numbers with Gobert, with Jaron Jackson playing center when like you'd think the rebounding would be the biggest issue. And it is. In those minutes, they only grab 70% of available defensive rebounds, which would be place them near the bottom of the league. Like giving up 30% offensive rebounds is real bad. But like if your first shot defense is that good, where despite giving up all those offensive rebounds, you still have a 102.1 defensive rating in those minutes. Like, does it really matter? So that's where I came down on it. And then it's just, 
like to to speak to Jaron Jackson's versatility, he's been basically the best isolation defender in the league this season, uh, based on the numbers. Zero point five nine points per possession allowed in ISO, which is first in the league among players who defended at least fifty. Uh, and Gobert's like up near a point per possession, so just just like not nearly as good, especially as a switch defender. And like if you think about the number of those isolations that are like Jaron Jackson being switched onto guards, it's pretty crazy that he has been able to hold them to that paltry figure. And I mean, I, I wrote about him earlier this season. Like, I, I just think um, the number of things that he is able to do, whether it's directly involved in action or as a low man, which is another area I think that like playing next to Adams really helps him because teams will go at Steven Adams in the pick and roll. Jaron Jackson will be there as a help side guy. Like, I think... Honestly, as a low man, I think he's been every bit as disruptive as Rob Williams has been, which is like the thing. And Rob Williams has been great. He was kind of in this mix for me too. But like, I feel like it's been a way bigger topic. Like people talk and and the Celtics defense has been amazing. So it makes sense. But like people talking about what a genius move it was by Ime Udoka to like make him the off-ball rover. And yeah, for sure. it that, That was a big part of Boston's defensive turnaround. And he was great at it. But Jaron Jackson's been doing that all season. Yeah. To your point, Jaron Jackson's been as good, if not the best isolation defender in the league while being one of, if not the best rim protector in the league. (laughs) And also doing that and doing what he's done defensively in Memphis for a top five defensive team whose best perimeter defender missed most of the season in Dylan Brooks. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and who in his stead have been playing. I mean, they have other good perimeter defenders, you know, like Melton's great. Yep. Tyus Jones is great, yeah. But they also give a ton of minutes to to John Morant, who's a very poor yep. perimeter defender, and Desmond Bain, who has gotten better, but is still like I would say average at best. Tyus Jones, by the way, uh, number one in the league in a stat I really like, which is defensive plays per foul. So it's like steals plus blocks um, divided by fouls, basically, which obviously is very important. You're making defensive plays without fouling. Uh, Tyus Jones, number one in the league in that regard this season. Yeah, I'll have more to say about Tyus Jones shortly, but. Um, yeah, I just think, um, whether it's eye test, whether it's the numbers, whether it's the fact that, you know, he was the linchpin of a Grizzlies defense that I think has overperformed. I think they're number five in the NBA. Uh, I, I just think he's been magnificent and it, it was close between him and Gobert for me, but I, I wound up going with him and maybe in part that is voter fatigue on my part, you know, and I just wanted to, to reward somebody new, but I, I really think that he, is wholly deserving of this. And yeah, so that's, I, I'm really surprised. I thought this was going to surprise you. Actually. I can't believe that you went, you went in the same direction as me. Cause I feel like the conversation has been more about like Marcus smart and right. bam out of bio and Giannis who, I mean, look, Giannis is still amazing defensively. I, I don't think he had as strong a case for this award this year as he has in years past. I just think he's maybe taken his foot off the gas at that end of the floor a little bit. Yeah. Um, Same with Embiid, to be honest. Yes. Well, I still sure. think he's a great defensive player, but I, I I think there's noticeable slippage in terms of his defensive impact compared to Yeah, inconsistent effort for Embiid. I think yeah. with Giannis, it's it's maybe more about the fact that he's just playing a different defensive role this year than he's played in years past and had to iron out some of the kinks. But honestly, I think at their peak, it's like we go back to that thing we were talking about where it's like, okay, you have to pick one defender to have on the floor for one possession where you need to get a stop i would still take Giannis over jaron but 
I think specifically as like a switch defender as uh, and as an isolation defender, I might take Jaron over Giannis at this point. I get what you're saying where like maybe it's a little bit of voter fatigue. Um, but I, I think that on the whole, Jaron Jackson was the best defender in the league during this regular season. And I, while I think it was close with Gobert, I think the fact that he played more games and more minutes in the end was the... the if there's going to be something that tips the scales, it was that. In addition to all the other things where he actually ranks ahead of him, Gobert, I don't really have much to add to you know everything you said about it. I did actually think along the same lines where I thought I was going to surprise you by coming with Jaron Jackson, but so much for that. Um, yeah, one other stat with Jaron Jackson. And I know this one's like, it, people are split on whether it should matter or not because it's sometimes the matchup data and even the way it's measured isn't, pro- like, isn't foolproof, but... Um, the stat where it's like the the difference in uh, shooting percentages based on who's guarding them. So like uh, compared to league average from the spots they're shooting and who's shooting it, Jaron Jackson also ranked uh, number two in the league when it came to defensive field goal percentage difference behind only Jared Allen, who you know is going to go down as like missing twenty six games. Or else he would have been in this race too. But so if you look at guys who are actually in the race, Jaron Jackson ranked top there too. So. Um, there's just so many different ways you can measure it where like it, it comes, everything comes up Jaron basically. So yeah, nothing more to add there. I think he, okay. he should win. I don't, I'm not so convinced he will win, but I think he should win. No, but I'm convinced he's going to wind up on an all defensive team and hopefully all defensive better. team, which he better, uh, you know, midway oh. through the season, I wasn't, I, I wasn't sure that he was going to get that recognition, but I think that he definitely will. Yeah, I want. Sorry, I want to make one more Jaron Jackson point. It's more so of like an aesthetic thing, and it's just kind of like telling our our uh, listeners like to just watch out for it because it's something that's always amazed me, and I've noticed it especially this season. Watch Jaron Jackson when he's like contesting at the rim, sometimes even in transition on fast breaks. I have never seen a guy seemingly jump too early so often, and yet still make the play. It is like this uncanny ability, skill, athleticism where he almost hovers in midair. Like it, it's, it's happened so many times a season where he'll be in, in the right position or he'll be chasing guy. And I'll be like, ah, he jumped to her in my head. I'm like, he jumped to her. He's going to be a foul or it's going to be like a scary collision at the rim. And I don't know how he does it, but he always, I, I think it's it. the seven foot five wingspan, dude. <laughs> yeah. I guess that is it, right? Like he, he can afford to jump too early and gamble on certain place because he knows between his athleticism and length, he will still recover and not like recovered traditionally, almost recovered like in midair or just hovering in midair or his arm will still stay in the right position despite him jumping too early where not only does he not get the foul, he also blocks the shot or alters and it's Anyway, watch out for that if you watch the Grizzlies coming up in the playoffs, whatever. It, it really is this uncanny ability where this guy can, can jump too early a lot of times or visually look like he's jumping too early and it just not matter at all and him still get the block or at least achieve what he wants to do on the defensive play. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our featured content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out The Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. Uh, okay, we, we have gone very long on these first two awards, which is fine because they are the most important. But let's yeah. try and breeze through the rest yes, of them please. a little bit quicker. So uh, I'm kicking it over to you. Where, where are we going next here? Rookie of the year. 
Okay, who you got? Scotty Barnes. I uh, I think that he did the most across the board for the best team of the teams in question when it comes to Rookie of the Year candidates. I think Evan Mobley was definitely in the conversation and for parts of the season was leading the conversation. But I think at the end of the day, Barnes did more across the board like for the better team. And I know injuries helped derail the Cavs and Mobley's injury was a part of that too. But I just think when it's... I, I was talking about this... Um, I think with with Giannis and Embiid maybe last week, and I know we didn't agree on all parts of it, but as I said then, when it's like very close between two guys, whether it's for an award or when I'm projecting forward or whatever the case, when it's that close between two guys, I'll always defer to the guy who can control the game more through having the ball in his hands. And I think between Barnes and Mobley, that is Barnes. I think with Barnes, though maybe, well, the efficiency did tail off as the season went on and and the defense wasn't always, you know, what you'd want it to be for a guy with Scotty Barnes' defensive ceiling. I do think, given the amount of time he did have the ball in his hands, given the amount of times he was playing like point center or like running things for the Raptors offense, some of the injuries the Raptors have, I think to have the load he had and to do it as steady as he did it is really hard to do, especially on a team that was also winning and trying to win games. Um, The fact that he played as many minutes as he did, he led uh, rookies in minutes, he played... Lead the Raptors in minutes, by the way. Led the Raptors in minutes. He This guy played 500 more minutes than Cade Cunningham, who obviously missed a bunch of the season. And look, I think Cade should be in this conversation more than maybe some people have him in it. But at the end of the day, he Scotty Barnes played 500 more minutes than Cade Cunningham and was just about as good, if not better than him, for a team that was much better than the team. Like, Cade missed a bunch of the season, then came back and played on a cellar dweller. It It is different. Barnes played 300 more minutes than Mobley at the end of the day too. And it's just like when you look at all of the things he did, the versatility, like I said, he was playing point center. He took turns defending every position, although you can argue maybe he didn't defend all of them well, but like he took that task while at times running the offense. Um, You talked about Jokic and the sticky hands. Barnes, I won't say it's sticky hands because he doesn't necessarily grab everyone, but I've rarely seen a player who has a nose for the ball and especially on the offensive glass has this just ability to get his hands to a ball in some form or fashion. And a lot of times that just meant him deflecting it or him even making a play on the ball on the offensive glass that resulted in keeping the play alive and it ending up in the Raptors' hands. He had so many plays like that. I just think all over the court, his fingerprints were all over this Raptors' season. And I think it is very rare for a rookie with the load he had on him to have his fingerprints all over a season where his team's going to win 47 to 49 games. I think Evan Mobley is a great young player and is going to be fantastic. I think Cade obviously is going to be an unbelievable talent. Scotty Barnes is right there with him and I think had the best rookie season for the best team of the teams in question. Yeah, I don't really disagree with any of that. I I went with Mobley. I thought it was super close. I just feel like the gap between Barnes and Mobley on offense was not as significant as the gap between them in Mobley's favor on defense. Like, I think for large chunks of this season, Mobley was playing all defense caliber. And Barnes narrowed that gap as the season went on. Like, I think he's looked a lot more comfortable, uh, especially defending off ball, I think, as the season's gone along. I think there's still some on-ball lapses with him. Like, he, he he still has this penchant of, like, pressing up on opposing guards and getting blown by. And it's just, he's still comparatively 
very raw at the defensive end, whereas Mobley looks like a finished product at that end and had this massive impact on Cleveland's defense, you know, helped turn them into one of the best defensive teams in the league. And I know that's fallen off some since Jared Allen went out. And I think you could make the argument that at the end of the day, Allen was still the most important defender for that team. But Mobley was phenomenal. And, you know, we were speaking about Jaron Jackson's versatility at that end of the floor. A lot of that applies to Mobley, too, with his ability to switch, his ability to guard in isolation, to be a rim protector, whether he's playing drop or coming over as a weak side helper. He did all of that. Uh, And I think it's hard to separate him and Allen at that end because so much of what the Cavs succeeded in doing was playing those guys off of each other at that end of the floor. Like they were so good with both of them out there together and the way that they could both cover for each other and allow them to go out and freelance and do different things was what made them so successful. But anyway, you slice it, Mobley was a huge part of that. And I don't think like, yeah, Barnes was better than him offensively, does more stuff with the ball in his hands, better scorer, better playmaker. But it's not like Mobley was chopped liver on offense either, right? Like, we saw points this season where this guy was, like, running pick and roll as the ball handler. And he was making plays out of the post and from the elbow. Like, he he was a pretty effective offensive player as well. Yep. And I just think, you know, the, at the end of the day, the tiebreaker for me was the fact that um, like if it was just the second half of the season, like if Scotty Barnes played defensively for the entire season, the way that he played in the second half, I think I would give him the nod, but you take the season as a whole, because like for the first half of the season, I think the gulf was very, very wide between them at the defensive end. Uh, and that still matters. We're still looking at the whole season and not just, you know, post all-star break when Scotty has kind of taken off and Mobley has, you know, I won't say sputtered, but maybe plateaued. But I still think as a full season award, I'd give the slight edge to Mobley. I have no issue with anyone giving it to Barnes because I think it's super close and it's more a matter of preference at that point. So, Okay, real quick before we move on, who would you take between those guys moving forward? Man, that is tough. Uh, I sco- probably, I sco- probably Scotty. I think there's like more. It's easier to dream on what Scotty can be. And, yeah. and like the different types of play, like he could grow into any different type of player. And and I, I think that's true to an extent of Mobley too, especially like starting with the defensive baseline this high, you know, he, he probably has like a defensive player of the year award in his future. And that's nothing to sneeze at, but I just think in terms of like trying to extrapolate um, and think about, okay, what, could this player be in the future? What is the ceiling? Uh, I think you'd give the slight edge to Scotty probably, but okay. One, one more, one word answer. Yeah. Scotty or Cade. Cade. Fair. I think like, like you mentioned it, you know, he, he came on super strong at the end of the season. And, and if he played the way that he played in the second half from the beginning of the year, then this would be a different conversation. He would be firmly in that mix. And, worth pointing out that he was saddled with way more responsibility than either of those other two guys. And at least in the second half, he really handled those responsibilities with aplomb. You know, I think he's a gifted playmaker uh, already just like so unhurried and composed in terms of his decision-making and also like a pretty stout defender too, man. Like his his understanding of team defense is very advanced. And I think he's going to be, 
he's going to be really solid at that end of the floor too. So he would still, he would still be like the guy that I would take number one if we were doing a redraft. But, but I think it's really close between all three of these guys. And I think they're all going to be excellent players for a very, very long time. Yeah. Special rookie rookie class. Yeah. Uh, Where are we going next? Uh, Why don't we do most improved? All right. You want to give me yours since I started us off with rookie? Yeah, it's jaw for me. Um, I, I just, you know, for him to have made that leap from, like, he was a good player last year. Don't get me yeah. wrong. But this this year was something different entirely. And if you look at, like, the, the extent to which he jacked up his usage rate while also becoming a much more efficient scorer, like, more of a downhill threat, a better at-rim finisher, a better three-point shooter, taking on like this massive offensive load for a Grizzlies team that is going to finish top five in offense, which is bonkers going top from five being on both ends of the court. Yeah. I know that's not part of the, the jaw discussion, but still Dude, no, it, it certainly are... is not <laughs> right. Exactly. But just to top the Grizzlies being a top five team on both ends of the court. What? Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just think it's, th- that's a crazy leap to make from, you know, he wasn't, I wouldn't have even called him a fringe all-star last year. Like he wasn't, he, I don't think he was really in that conversation. Like he was at best a fringe all-star last year. And this year we're talking about a guy who is probably going to make all NBA second team. Like that's, that's an enormous leap. And there, you can interpret this award any type of way. And I'm not like, Oh, you have, that's the hardest leap in the game to make. Like you have to reward that guy. That's, he, he's just the one that that I thought deserved it the most. And I'll, I'll spit out a bunch of names that I had in contention because there were a lot of them. First of all, Desmond Bain did not see this jump coming from him just in terms of obviously the shooting like and the volume, the way that he was able to scale it up, but also doing more things with the ball in his hands, like becoming a hugely important part of what's been an incredible Grizzlies team. I think that if I hadn't given my uh, defensive player of the year vote to Jaron, I I might have deferred to picking him for most improved because I think defensive leaps are never rewarded in this category. And just one time I want to see it given to a player who made like the leap on the defensive yeah, side. I like that. And no player made a bigger defensive leap than he, than he did this season. Um, Miles Bridges. The That's my pick, by the way. That's yeah. my pick. So I'll, I'll let you talk about him. But then the other guys I had were DeJounte Murray, Maxi, Jared Allen, uh, yep. who became, you know, he's always been a good defensive player, but became a, a better defensive player while also becoming the type of offensive player that I didn't necessarily think that he could be. Uh, and his post scoring this year was like a revelation. And then uh, Darius Garland, Anthony Simons, great season for Portland, uh, Jordan Poole. And those were kind of the guys that I was choosing between. But yeah, I went with Ja. And uh, I, I'm, yeah, I'm curious to hear your case for Miles. I mean, I'm, I, I I understand it because he was very much in this mix for me, but uh, let's hear. Yeah. So I like your point about how, uh, you know, there's like different ways to interpret the award. And for me, it comes down to, I guess, the way you interpret it. So um, I think John Morant had the most important improvement or took the most important leap that an NBA player can take. And one that is most important for a franchise going from what he was, even if you did want to say he was a fringe all-star in that range, Going from that to All-NBA second team, going from that to legitimate franchise superstar, like looking like transcendent type talent, like the guy you can build 
a championship core around. That's the most important leap, and I will not argue that. And so if and when he probably wins this award, I won't really take issue with that. Um, I think then there's people that might like sometimes interpret this as almost like the most surprising improvement in a way. You know, it's like the most surprising player. And I think on that level, a guy like Desmond Bain or I guess even a Jared Allen in a way, like you could go with that. I try to interpret it as like the NBA player that improved the most, regardless of whether it ends it ends up being important long-term, regardless of how much you expected it, which NBA player improved the most in general. And I think that was Miles Bridges. I think he quietly was one of the more improved players last year, but I still think he was very much still like a guy last year. You know, he was a solid NBA player, but he was a guy. And I think the leap from what he was to what he became this year when he became basically a 20, not basically, he's a 20-point-a-game scorer. He's averaging roughly 20.7 rebounds, four dimes, a block and a steal on 59% true shooting. He played almost 2,800 minutes, second in the league, by the way, to only Mikhail Bridges of no relation. The self-creation, which you were starting to allude to there, this is a guy that for the first few years of his career, uh, more than 65% of his two-point attempts were uh, assisted. Sorry, field goals were assisted. This year, that was under 60%. That's a huge uh, leap in self-creation. You just like put everything together. And then it's also like when I talk about, you know, just general improvement, Miles Bridges, I don't think it's any debate, was the second best Hornet this year. I mean, I think he's closer to being the, like he's closer to how impactful LaMelo was than I think he was to like the third best Hornet. But I think pretty safe to say he was the second best Hornet this year behind LaMelo, right? And the second most impactful. If you had asked me like come like last year to this year, Ja going from what he was to a top 10 player, I'd say that's an incredible leap. It's important. But, you know, the the difference in that between what Miles Bridges was last year to being the guy that can now be the second best player on a 500 plus NBA team and doing what he did offensively, I'd say, no, that blows me away way more. Like that to me is a bigger jump, not as important, but a bigger jump. And for that reason, I'm going with Miles Bridges. But like I said, I see the argument for Jaw and or Desmond Bain, just depending on how people interpret this award. I will say, I think it's a really interesting case you're laying out. And one thing it made me think of is another way to interpret this award that I actually really like is which player improved the most while like fundamentally changing who they are as a player. Right. Because I think at the end of the day, Jaw didn't actually do that. He just got like a lot better at the things that he was already good at and the things that he was already doing. But with Bridges, he's like a different player than he was last season. He's doing different things. He has a different role and the the extent to which he's creating for himself, the extent to which he is just driving the ball. And 72% assisted last year versus 59 this year. Yeah. So I think that's that's an interesting case for him. And I, you know, I'm not saying that's enough for me to like switch my vote, but I do think as far as just like ways to interpret this award, I like that one a lot as far as like this guy didn't just improve like things that were already in his toolkit. He added new things to his toolkit. Like he changed who he was. And like, that's, that's one of the hardest things I think to do in the league is to become a fundamentally different kind of player. Sixth man of the year. Tyler hero was my pick at the beginning of the season. I think he was my pick basically all throughout the year. I think maybe there's some other guys in this race that, uh, I think Tyler hero is going to run away with the award and I would give it to him, but I, I know that there are other guys in this race too, and I have a feeling you might have gone another way, but I'd give it to Tyler Hero. I think I think he was the best 
player consistently coming off the bench in the NBA. And I think there were a lot of games this season where like his, especially in games where the heat were banged up, where his offense off the bench was the reason they were in games. And I know there's a defensive argument to be made too, where there's a lot of games, maybe every game where opponents picked on him on the defensive end. But I think for his role on this team, I think he just excelled in it in a way where I don't think any other bench player in the NBA came close, maybe strong, but I, I I think Hero should be the runaway winner for sixth man of the year. Yeah, I agree. I did not go in a different direction. Oh, okay. I think I thought maybe you were gonna go with Tyus Jones. Well, he was sort of like a runner up for me, which okay. is like, yeah, I, no, I agree. Because yes. I alluded to it before, I guess. That's right. Why. That's why I thought. Yeah. Um well I was just sort of like I was thinking at some point you know, should we just do the thing where like, you know, the entire Hawks starting lineup one player of the month that one time, <laughs> we just give six man of the year to the Grizzlies, the Grizzlies bench yeah. because, you know, t- I think Tyus Jones is kind of spearheaded that unit. He's been awesome, man. Like, and, yeah. and not only like coming off of the bench, but when Jaw's been out and he's had to step in to the starting lineup and function as the Grizzlies starting point guard. I mean, he, he's just been such a rock for them, right? Like so reliable and sturdy Um, and like taking care of the ball has always kind of been his thing. Like he routinely puts up the best assist to turnover ratios in the NBA, but you know, and, and and as much as that sort of speaks to like risk aversion, which isn't necessarily a good thing for a point guard. I still think like he helps them out a lot as a playmaker. You know, I don't think that that being risk averse for him, is such a detriment because I think he still makes really productive passes. I think he shot the lights out this year. He's got a wicked floater. And for a guy his size, I mean, man, is he a pesky defender. So um, I just love what he's done for Memphis this year. But like, I also kind of wanted to give the rest of their bench credit because I think Melton's been awesome. Brandon Clark has been fantastic and a big bounce back year for him after a down year last year. Uh, Kyle Anderson, like they're, their bench has just been incredible but no uh, i i think it's really hard to make a case for anyone other than tyler hero and even if you don't love his player type and like are you know maybe a little concerned about the things that he takes off the table i just think given what miami needed from him this year and what they asked him to do like he delivered man and and i don't think you could ask for a whole lot more than what he gave them coming off of the bench like just functioning really well within their ecosystem, right? I, I feel like something he doesn't get enough credit for is just how crafty a mover he is with and without the ball. And I think like the fact that they can go to their bench and have a guy who can run their offense, but who can also just fit so seamlessly into their movement sets, into their split action and the off ball cuts. Like he is a perpetual mover. And I think you think about bench gunners like the the kind of stereotypical guy who comes off the bench and gives you 20 you don't think of somebody who does that you know and i think that's something that hero really deserves a lot of credit for i think he's a an underrated passer if a little bit wild at times like he passes pretty well on the move so yeah I i didn't see a strong case for anybody else i mean like really the only other guy that i considered was cam johnson who i think's been unbelievable off of phoenix's bench this year but uh, again, it's just like if you think about responsibility and what those two guys were asked to do, I had to give Hero the nod. All right, player awards out of the way. Who's your coach of the year? Monty Williams. Thank Got you. robbed last year. Yes. And 
even if we weren't doing this as like a multi-year award, even if he had won it last year, I feel like I would still want him to win this year. Yes. Because I just don't think there is a team in the league that is better coached, that is better prepared, that executes their stuff with more focus and precision than the Suns do. And that's a credit to the players on the Suns, obviously, but it's a huge credit to Monty Williams and the structures and system that he has put in place there. They just play with so much poise and discipline. And I think that that has to be a credit to their coaching staff. Yep. And even the crunch time stuff, like, look, I get that Chris Paul and Devin Booker, you know, the players on the court are the biggest reason for that, but you got to give the coach some credit there too. If a team is consistently winning crunch time minutes, at least some part of the credit for that should go to the coach just the same way. Like if there was a team that consistently flopped in crunch time and could not win a close game, a coach would get at least some of the blame, if not the majority of it for it. So they should get some of the credit too when a team is just absolutely dominant in crunch time. And yeah, great point on like, I think he deserves it partly because he was robbed last year, but also he's also just been the damn best coach in the league this year in this regular season. The Suns are eight games clear of any other team, okay? Um, and even if if you want to be one of those people that's like, you know, they they reward a coach or a team that's just surprising, like last year, Thibodeau and the Knicks, it's like, well, we didn't see this coming, so... You got to give it to that game. Well, guess what? Even if you went by looking at like what you expected from a team in the in the preseason and what they ended up were, I still think you could make the argument that the Suns might have overexceeded expectations by the most, not by their seeding, but by their total amount of wins. And a good way to look at that, even though I know Vegas over-under numbers at the start of the season are not a prediction, they're more so it's Vegas setting a line that they think will get like equal action on each side, but still, you look at those over-unders and then look at where teams are going to finish in wins and like compare them. The Suns are still going to finish top two when it comes to over-exceeding that over-under total. Do you know how hard it is to be one of the two or three top teams in over-unders to finish number one in the league in the end and to still have the gap between those numbers be as big as any team in the league? It's friggin' hard. The Suns did it. There is literally, in my opinion, no way you can slice this or no way you can interpret how to give out coach of the year without giving it to Monty Williams this year. And if he doesn't get it, if it ends up going to like Taylor Jenkins, or look, look, again, I just said Grizzlies top five on the, both ends of the court. I get that. But if you give it to Taylor Jenkins, you give it to Bickerstaff, although the Cavs fell off. So any of those guys are really had really good years as a coach. None of them deserve, deserve to beat out Monty Williams for what he's done with the Suns this year or last year for that matter. So combo of deserves it last year and just absolutely deserves it this year if this guy comes out of this two-year run without a single coach of the year award i think everyone who voted on coach of the year this year should be barred from nba arenas for one calendar year okay (laughs) as the official stance of the pound the rock podcast let's put that out there in the world but look i will say i think there are a lot of it's weird to say deserving candidates because i really think that monty deserves it more than anybody else but in another year, yeah, I, I would be totally fine with Eric Spolstra getting it. You mentioned Taylor Jenkins. I mean, what a job he has done. And obviously, like, Grizzlies are all over all of these ballots. It's just been that kind of year for them. Ty Lue, keeping that Clippers yes. team afloat. Uh, Nick Nurse doing what he's done with the Raptors. Steve Kerr, I mean, I know things have kind of fallen apart for the Warriors down the stretch here. But, like, when they were going, man, were they going. And I yeah. think that's a big credit to him as well. Man, Chris Finch in Minnesota. Like, yes, I, yes. I feel like we were 
pretty optimistic about the Wolves coming into this season. Did we expect them to be fighting for a top six seed and like winning 47 games? I don't think so. I think that nope. that is a surprise to most people outside and possibly even inside Minnesota. So I think he deserves a ton of credit, especially given how much of that success, especially on the defensive side of the ball, can be traced back to things that he specifically implemented, a vision that he had for this team that has really worked out well. So I I think it's been a great season for him. Uh, Ime Udoka in Boston, J.B. Bickerstaff in Cleveland. I mean, before injuries completely deflated this season for them, uh, they were you know, maybe the surprise team in the league. So lots of great candidates, but I still think that Monty kind of towers over them all. Are we going to do executive of the year or what? We are. I have a feeling that we're going to be aligned on this one as well. Give me yours. Masai Ujiri and Bobby Webster. I like it. Yeah, that's that's where I ended up going with it as well. So we are aligned. So... I don't know who of them would win this award or if both of them would win it, like how yeah, that would I think, work. I think it's the same thing. Like even when the Heat get votes, it's a little bit, it's like Pat Riley and Andy Ellisberg. I think mm-hmm. it's it's sometimes with these teams where have like the president and GM, you know, the GM handles a lot of day-to-day stuff. But I think for ballot purposes, people are like, if Miami's going to get an executive of the year award, people are going to write in Pat Riley, I would assume. Right. But I think, it, I think it might be shared. I'm not quite sure how that works in, in a case like this. Yeah, I think... There's very much a brain trust in Toronto. I think it's like pretty collaborative in terms of the decision making. And I feel like Bobby Webster is a big part of that and doesn't like everyone talks about Masai and deservedly so. He's unbelievable at his job. But I feel like Bobby doesn't seem to get as much shine as maybe he deserves for the role there's, that he has played. There's a uh, reason one of Masai Jerry's first uh, duties when he came to Toronto was hiring Bobby Webster away from the league office. Right. Um, Here's the thing. First of all, it is nuts to me that Masai Ujiri, that Bobby Webster, that neither of these guys has won this award in the time that they have been in the Raptors front office. If you think about what that front office has done with this organization over the last eight years, like they haven't won it. That's crazy to me. Not in the 2018-19 season when they won the championship, not the following season when... They managed to come back and be on basically a 60-win pace after Kawhi Leonard and Danny Green left. So there's that. And they, and go ahead. Sorry, because since they came to Toronto and took over a franchise that was usually a laughing stock for its first, you know, almost 20 years of existence, the Raptors are top two in the NBA in wins, top three in playoff wins, and basically tied for second in championships because <laughs> other than Golden State, the only other teams that have won it have won one. So uh, when you look at all that, they've made the playoffs now, what, eight of nine years since they've like, th- yes, that how how does that, bra- and, and it's been the same brain trust the whole time and there's now one executive of the year award to show for it. Yeah. And I think, you know, generally speaking, I don't approach awards as like lifetime achievement awards. I think the two exceptions that I am typically willing to make our coach of the year and executive of the year because I think in a lot of ways these are multi-year projects like you could look at this season as the culmination of what Monty Williams has been building towards since he arrived in Phoenix three years ago and reward him on that basis alone and I think I feel the same about the executive of the year award because 
these things take time to build. Like they're, you know, an executive might have like a five-year plan that doesn't come to fruition. And like, they might've made like all the most important moves in the, in the four years leading up to the year that it actually like, that, that things actually work out and, and the vision is fulfilled. And so in that, that calendar year or that season, there might not have been any standout moves that made it work, but you can reward the process. And I think with the Raptors, First of all, there is like a clear vision with this team that is fundamentally different from what pretty much every other team in the league is doing right now. And the fact that they have done that and that it succeeded to the extent that it has, I think is worth rewarding. Scotty Barnes pick is a home run and it's not, you know, you might look at that and say, well, you had the fourth overall pick, you picked a good player, congratulations, but... That was not the consensus pick. That pick surprised a lot of people, I think us included. And yet they identified something in Scotty Barnes that they knew could be special. Just like, like I was really critical of the Kyle Lowry trade when it happened. And How are you liking Precious Achua now? And yet Precious Achua is turning into this unbelievable development story. And that's a credit to him and it's a credit to the Raptors player development staff. But I think it speaks to the fact that it is undeniable at this point that this front office is just really, really good at talent evaluation and sees things that other front offices miss. And so I I look at this team and I'm thinking like, yeah, okay, maybe like apart from the Barnes pick, is there like a standout move? I, I just think the bold choices that they've made, the bold vision that they had for this team, it's not perfect. I think they could still certainly use more shooting, more ball handling, more guard depth. Like (laughs) it's a long way from perfect, but they did something different and it worked. And they took this team that was like, I hesitate to say developmental year because like their three best players are basically in their primes uh, in Pascal, Fred and OG. But let's just say this was a season in which development was prioritized. And they took a team in that situation, and they're the fifth seed in the Eastern Conference right now. So that's that's why I picked them. Yep, winning and developing Spurs East. You, there are so many ways to look at this Raptors roster and the future and the present, and and come up with ways why um, the Raptors brain trust should be at the very least in the running for this award. And when we had Will Lou on, where when I had Will Lou on to talk Raptors a, a couple weeks ago, the last episode before your return. And I posed the question at the end that like when I was going through the rosters and especially in the Eastern Conference, like it was hard for me to come up with a team that I could say wholeheartedly I would pick as having a brighter future than there are. There are not many, very few, okay, in the, let alone in the, in the entire NBA. So there's that. There's like the future that they've built while building this very different vision. I think that that gives them points to me in this award when it's close between them and another team because doing some getting to where they got to while doing something different is a lot more impressive to me than following the usual blueprint, right? Especially in a league and in a sport. Like it's, it's, you hear coaches say it all the time you, and executives, we're not reinventing the wheel here, right? Like, and it's very true. Like at the end of the ga- day, the game is the game. There's only so much you can innovate. You know what I mean? Like we talk about even a guy like Nick Nurse or other coaches being these creative geniuses. And in some ways they are, but at a certain point, it's like they're stealing from each other. And there, there's only so much you can do. And a game when there's 10 people on the court and they're just trying to put the ball in the hoop, you know, but 
for the Raptors to have found a different vision and to excel while doing it is one thing. To do that while building a future that looks so bright while remaining a top five seed in the East now in the first year post lottery after only missing the playoffs once, you know, like to your point. Yeah. Like they had the top, a top four pick, but they also used it on a guy that not a lot of people thought was a top four talent. And it's turned out great for them. And now it's at the point where we're having a debate earlier, or at least posing the question is him versus the guy that ended up going number one, you know, is, is a tough choice. So there's that. And then there's also like, you could look at the team they have now, you know, they're a top 10 team in the league, let's say, but then you look at their say under 25 talent. Like you talked about their top three players being in their prime. Well, OG still part of that under 25 contingent. And then it's like, even if you look at under for, 25, for like another couple months, right? I know, but still like, even if you look at under 25 to, or 25 and under talent, and you can say Scotty Barnes, OG Ananobi, Precious Achua, and even Gary Trent, you know, uh, whether you're looking at just this year or the way he projects forward and, and whether he's a chip going forward, those four guys in terms of 25 and under talent, are there even a handful of teams in the league that you would say have more under 25 talent than that? And if there are, how many of them are also top five in their conference? The only answer is probably Memphis, maybe Boston. Uh, so I'm on, I agree with you. For me, what tipped the scales? Cleveland? You know, with with Allen, but I, Mobley, but and they're Allen? not top. Five. I said, and and are still top five. Like that, uh-huh. you could say have that much young talent and are top five. Now we're splitting hairs because Cleveland was in contention for a top five seed until the injuries. So yeah, but th- th- that's the group bases like Toronto, uh, well Memphis, Toronto, Boston, Cleveland, and the East. What tipped the scales for me between the Raptors and the other team for executive of the year was what you mentioned that they went about doing it differently. But I do think if it wasn't for that. I'd give it to Zach Kleiman and the Grizzlies. And it very similar to what you were saying and what I agree with where this award, like if a season went successful and the future trajectory of a franchise changed in one year, but because of the moves and the processes that they put in place over a period of years, that they were on the rise and this year was just the year they boomed. If their best moves were made a couple of years ago, but they the results and the fruits of that really just came to fruition this year, does that make them less worthy of executive of the year uh, compared to a, a, a an executive who maybe spearheaded a one-year rebuild that doesn't really have the same ceiling? In my opinion, no. And it, they should still be in contention for that award. If you look at what Zach Klein has done in Memphis and what the Grizzlies have built over the last few years, and to that end, as much as John Morant improved this year, look at their record without Jaw this year, right? And because of drafting a guy like uh, Jaron Jackson, bringing the guys they did in, getting Desmond Bain, um, all, like all this stuff, Tyus Jones, D'Anthony Melton, that move for him a couple years ago went under the radar. We both loved it, but that's proof. Like there are just so many ways you can look at it where like Zach Kleiman and the Grizzlies have built something really good and really sustainable over the last couple of years. And it was slowly bubbling. They were getting better, but it really jumped off the page and got blown out of the water this year despite the fact they didn't really make any seismic moves going into this year, right? Unless you count Steven Adams. Um, so I think I think between the Raptors and Grizzlies, I think either one of those teams' brain trust getting this award will make sense to me. And I think it will, it will be a very worthy award for two front offices that have been going about things the right way and doing it right for f- a few years now. And it's just this year popped in the case of Memphis. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely strongly considered... Climbing, I think really the one reason I didn't is their offseason looks way better to me now than it did at the time, which you might remember I was pretty down on it. Yes. And I still think they'd be better if they just kept JV. 
they got Zaire Williams out of it, who who has come on really strong in the second half of the season and looks like he could have a bright future there. So again, that makes it look better. But I, I just can't shake the feeling that I would like this team better if they still had JV. So that's uh or or for that matter, if they hadn't like given up Grayson Allen for literally nothing. Uh and I know people are super down on Grayson Allen generally for for good reason, but uh, just in terms of like his actual play, I think he's a useful player that uh, still could have helped Memphis. Like they they have more shooting than they used to, but I, I still think they could use Grayson Allen shooting. And if if we're looking toward the playoffs, uh, I just think they would be better served with a, a center like Valanciunas than they're going to be with Adams. But again, like like in terms of everything you said and what they've been building towards, they they have a strong argument. Also considered Riley. Like I think just building out that that team's yep. bench, obviously getting Lowry, nabbing PJ Tucker, like all those moves have worked out really well for them. Um honestly, Brad Stevens in Boston, like that yeah. Kemba for Horford swap looks like a master stroke right now. Uh and I, I really liked the Derek White acquisition for them at the deadline. Obviously things have, have worked out quite well and that team has coalesced very nicely. Kobe Altman in Cleveland and as much as things have cratered here for the Bulls uh, I think Arturis Karsanovas deserves some love uh, because when that team was healthy they were rolling and all their moves look good right like getting Caruso looks amazing like the the contract they signed DeRozan to looks great Uh, getting Lonzo Ball looks great like it's all pretty much worked out like gangbusters I just feel like they've kind of been undone by injuries and maybe the fact that they didn't have the highest of ceilings to begin with. But in terms of just like who had the best off season in hindsight, I think you could still make an argument that it was the bulls. Yeah, no, that's a fair argument. Um, okay. Let's leave that there. That please, that is uh, close to 90 minutes on James Harden and everything going on with him. <laughs> plus the what? Six and major. Awards? Eight? Seven. No. Seven. Seven okay. major awards. So, yeah, let's leave that there. Cash, fan shout-out for us this week. Fan shout-out. This, this goes to an in-person fan shout-out. Oh, wow. Pierre from North York, who came up to me while I was on a double date at Richmond Hill Pro Bowl last weekend. Uh, first time bowling in, like, I don't know, like years and years. Oh, I man, I miss I bowling. Like, it's been, I, been too I, long. I'm, I'm terrible at it, but it was a fun time. But anyway... Double date, Richmond Hill Pro Bowl. Pierre, guy comes up to me, says, this might seem creepy, but are you Joseph from the score, like the, the NBA podcast? And anyway, talk to him for a few minutes. Uh, Pierre's a big fan of the show. So shout out Pierre, one of our rare in-person uh, meet and shout outs. And I did want to mention, just because it was uh, hilarious to me. So when I like I took his name and um, I was asking him how long he's been listening, he said a long time and, and asked him where he listens from. He eventually told me North York, but when I first asked him, like, where are you from for the shout out purposes? Like we usually do, like, you know, where do you listen from? Whatever. And I said, Pierre, where are you from? And he looked at me kind of confused and he said, I'm Egyptian. <laughs> and I said, no, no. Like, where are you listening from? Anyway, that uh, gave me a chuckle because he thought I was asking him like, where, like, what's your background, which is a very normal question that Canadians ask each other because very few people here are uh, second generation. Can like so many people here are first or second generation at worst Canadians. So uh, that gave me a laugh. But anyway, Pierre North York. Thanks for uh, thanks for the kind words. North York up to via Egypt. Yes, yeah, <laughs> Egypt. And the meetup was in Richmond Hill. Just getting all over the place here. 
But uh, thank you, Pierre, for supporting the show. Hope you enjoy the shout out. Thank you to everyone who listens. And the usual call out. Now that Wolfon's back and we're doing two a week, we need uh, we need reach out so that we can shout you out. So if you're a fan of Pound the Rock, if you're listening to this today for the first time or the 233rd time, let us know uh, where you're listening from, what you like about the show, how long you've been listening. We'll get you a shout out in a future episode. Reach out on Twitter via uh, at Joey double underscore Y-O-U at Joseph Cacharo, email joe.wolfon at thescore.com, joseph.cacharo at thescore.com, or Instagram, joe underscore 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 cash. Let us know, and we will shout you out. Indeed. That is a behemoth of an episode in the books, and we are heading into the final weekend of the regular season. We are only going to be recording one episode next week. It'll probably come later in the week, probably toward the tail end of the play-in round. So the next time we speak to y'all, uh, yeah, we'll be we'll be gearing up for the playoffs, previewing some series and whatnot. So I guess we're calling that a wrap on this regular season from Pound the Rock. I know I skipped a chunk of it, but it's good to be back in the saddle and looking forward to the couple months ahead. For now, we're signing off. For Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon, Pound the Rock. Pound the Rock.